I'm Brian Myers. I'm Mike Ritalik. I'm Becky Haddad. And this is Owl Pellets, a podcast featuring tips for ag teachers. We are your agricultural education resource across the web, sharing research-based tips and tackling the tough questions facing agriculture teachers every day. Hello, Owl Pellets. This is Brian. I am here with Becky and Mike, and we are here by the Owl Pellet. And we are excited for another great conversation with one of our agricultural education colleagues, Michael Martin from, where are you from? ISU, I heard of this place once before. Where is this? Yeah, I'm coming to you from uh, Ames, Iowa. I'm currently a a faculty member at Iowa State University. Iowa State University. That sounds familiar. Becky, do we know anybody else from Iowa State University? No one will claim. Okay, no one will claim. (laughs) (laughs) Scott Smalley? Scott Smalley. Scott Scott Smalley is who we know from (laughs) Iowa State. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, uh, we we have two mics from Iowa State with us here. But, Michael Martin, thank you so much for being with us. You have introduced yourself a little bit, but tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do there in the great state of Iowa. Yeah. For those listening, I was myself a a former ag teacher from Illinois, I got a PhD from Missouri, um, spent eight years in Colorado, working in Colorado State, and then had the privilege to come into Iowa. Been here now for two full years with a focus on um, teacher education. My specialty um, is program development, um, urban agriculture, and then diversity, equity, inclusion topics in agriculture. I'm the lesser good looking of the two mics in our department. (laughs) Oh, look at that. I, I'm wondering if he's going to admit about when he, when Michael Martin and I first met. Huh. Well, we did. I, I don't know how much you want me to say about that, but um, I, I'm just going <laughs> to say that when I was um, section FFA section chair, uh, Mr. Brian Myers, now Dr. Myers, was the I um, IAVAT chair. So basically, I answered to him. Um, so, uh, and I, honestly, too, when I was getting my thing about getting a PhD. He was the only one I knew that had gone from the field. I knew person who had gone from the field in their PhD. And so I remember sitting at a dinner table saying, well, Brian Myers of Unity did it, so why couldn't I? <laughs> if Myers can do it, anybody can. There's the life lesson for the day. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and that's our tagline for our recruitment, for our grad program. If Myers can do it, so can you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what memories you have, so I'm trying. I, I, I imagine your memories might be more embarrassing than my memories. Absolutely, me, so. we we have we have absolutely, the- <laughs> absolutely they are. <laughs> but we don't tell on each other. Uh, oh, really? Not on. Not we don't record our. T- what we oh, tell on each other oh. at least. All right, so this is fantastic. So it is great, and honestly, it is it is kind of fun that we talk about agricultural education. It is one small family, and and we all get to know each other. Which I always tell folks, if you don't know who the crazy, you know, we're all one small family. And if you don't know who the crazy uncle is, you are the crazy uncle. Uh, but it is it is great to to get to to work with with Mike once again. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about, give us a quick summary about the topic for today. Very interesting conversation, and something that we really need to be talking about. Yeah, so the title of the paper, the, the point of the paper was to look at how um, white people benefit um, from being members of the FFA. And I say benefit 
have more advantages um, in the FFA than, let's say, people of color. And I know that for some folks, this is a contentious topic, but let me start off with the main question that drove me. You know, for the longest time, I've always been wondering how and why is the FFA very successful in rural communities, right? And we can think about that that question because I think it's an important question. For many rural communities, the FFA is an institution, much like rural churches, sports teams, Lions clubs, whatever you have it in your local area. And and how and why? Now, to me, one of those answers relies upon the nature of the FFA itself and how it works within its populations. I argue that the FFA has rituals and traditions that are more rule-centric and conservative-focused than as compared to, let's say, um, being situated in an urban area, right? And so this, this contextually, in my mind, makes sense that it would be like this, but you know, to a, to a more important question we should ask ourselves is not necessarily how or, or what does the FFA represent, but it's more how then does that representation filter down to students? So if we were to take high school agriculture FFA into more urban areas, how would it interact, right? And so what ways would maybe then all of a sudden students not be attracted or not want to participate in the FFA? In what ways has the FFA have traditions and rituals like that? So does that make sense, hopefully? Definitely makes sense. And I think it fits with, we're doing a mini series on mentoring. And one of the big pieces of that National Academy's report talks about the identities and what people have access to in organizations based on their identities. And even things like, what types of questions am I going to ask? Who am I going to feel comfortable approaching? Who are my friends? And do do I see myself as part of those norms and part of that kind of that way of being that I'm going to have to adopt if I'm going to be part of this, whether it's a career, whether it's an organization. Um, and so I think that aligns really closely with some things that we're going to be talking about in that series as well. And I want to be very clear about something. I am not arguing that the National FFA organization is racist. I'm not arguing that advisors are racist. What I'm trying to highlight are elements, structures, rituals, things within the FFA, which would have more favor, more appeal to white students versus other students. There are many ways to look at this question, and many have looked at it from different perspectives, whether it's a more urban perspective versus a rural perspective, but I chose um, race and, and whiteness as as this certain one. So, so un unpack some of that for us, Mike. When you start talking about looking at some of these elements of ag education and FFA membership and some of the rituals, what, what were some of the things that you found when it, and, and help us as, as a organization, as ag teachers understand that a little bit more? Well, I, I kind of want to give the, the, the most obvious no duh that people don't talk about, right? The FFA was formed um, in the mid to late twenties at a time when basically rural community had enough of people from the outside, of people from urban areas, um, smart and, and academic people, had enough of them saying, you're doing all these things wrong in rural communities. And what they wanted to do was find a ways to keep rural youth, in this case, young men, 
interested in staying in rural communities because there's a massive um, almost century long rural flight going on. How can we keep them in rural communities? How can we maintain control of our own identities? And so when the FFA is formed in this context, we should not be surprised then that it favors rural youth. It was designed to favor rural youth structurally with their traditions and with its rituals. So what you see in the FFA is you see a lot of reference to sort of maintaining this identity, to saying, if you look at the past of what it means to be in a rural community, you can find your pride and you can find your identity. I could go on a long, long discussion about the political um, traditions of this. I, I won't. I'll, I'll spare everybody. But that's the no duh, that the organization was formed to serve rural youth. And if you think about the idea then that there's also a separate organization for students of color, it's more designed to, to focus a little more on, on, on white students for students of color. And I know that there are historians out there who could be like, Mike, you're missing these, you know, seven students here, these eight students. I've got a, a book on the history of FFA in California, and it's got a, a Japanese-American student of World War II as being a, a, maybe even a state officer. I can't remember. It's at very least an award winner. I'm not trying to downplay that, but I'm saying those are the exceptions and, and not the norms. So when we look at you know, things, for instance, you know, the creed has lines in which it just exposes how important it is that we think about this tradition of agriculture, right? In a country which is fairly still young, trying to sort of then capture these ideas that you can sort of think about and be pr proud about, right? And that's a very conservative ideal, right? This idea that the past provides us the traditions to move forward. Um, and then, you know, there's elements along with the rituals, you know, I pinpoint this idea of George Washington um, being the, the treasurer. And I'm not, be very careful, I don't get in trouble. I'm not saying that we don't honor George Washington as a president. I'm not saying remove him from a quarter. But if you listen to the treasurer's part of the opening ceremony, it is clearly arguing that George Washington was really good at managing his farm sorry, his plantation, I should say. Um, but like it, it completely obfuscates the fact that like that was a plantation with slaves. And so um, it, when you hear that as a person of color, what do you think, right? You hear as a, maybe as a white person, you're like, oh, great president, great farmer, makes total sense. But as a person of color, what you're hearing is, oh, they were great because they had um, enslaved people. The other aspect, which is a little more challenging is Award structures are set up in the FFA. Now, we could argue that 80 years ago, 100 years ago, um, agriculture looked different. It was much smaller scale, you know, um, a lot more people involved in it. And so these production-oriented awards and the hyper-focus on production-oriented awards, it was a little more level playing ground. But now, um, because we've had such a an accumulation of wealth of agriculture, towards the top few who were actually involved in production side, access to these resources is much more challenging. So not all, I'm not even arguing just for urban. Urban areas is a big obvious one, right? But I grew up in a small town, um, you know, close to Dr. Myers, and I didn't have access to livestock. I probably could have found my way to, to have one, right? But it wasn't there ready for me. And so that's another 
another element of this, right? That like access to resources already, um, they favor a certain group of people who have access to that. And that tends to be, at least in the United States, um, white people. I hope I didn't get too uh, nerdy there. <laughs> that was great. Thanks. So this, so this is part of a larger national conversation. I know National FFA is is made some attempts to have this conversation to, and to look at these various things as we try to expand school-based agricultural education and the FFA organization into new communities um, across, you know, across the country and, and, and having conversations around these things. What are some things that we can be doing uh, as the local ag teacher um, as we're working in communities here, as you know, in just around this table, we've got three very different states represented from, from Iowa to Nebraska to Florida. Uh, and then you and I with our roots in Illinois, and these are all very different states and our ag ed programs look very different from there. And so what can ag teachers be having, using this kind of information to have conversations as we work in our communities, both in rural, suburban and urban areas um, that all of our ag programs are found in? Well, I, thank you for the question. I first want to say that I'm I'm not acting or saying things that are rogue to National FFA. Um, they've heard me talk about this. They've said this makes sense. They haven't necessarily endorsed the research, right? They're not going to put their sample approval on it. But I'm not saying things right now that are completely out of the bounds. So in my mind, no matter what community you're in, you need to be ready to adapt your FFA to make sense to your members. We can go on an argument about whether actual FFA serves rural communities or not. That's not necessarily the question on hand, but there's a lot of conversation to have around that. So there are some things that you can do when you're trying to serve a more diverse audience in your FFA. And I think first and foremost, you got to stop doing the things that don't make any sense to your members. Now, I personally had success with this. I taught in a place called Urbana, Illinois for a number of years. We didn't wear official dress to almost any of our chapter meetings, right? Because my students either A, didn't have jackets or couldn't afford them. Now we would wear them to section level events or state level events or where they were required. But when it comes to the actual duties of our, our chapter, you know, for instance, our chapter banquet, nobody wore uh, um, official dress that last year because we had the softball tournament going on afterwards. So we had our award ceremony and then everyone out and played softball and we had Oh, I think 50, 50 FFA members show up to it. Now, that includes things like how do you do FFA opening ceremonies? Should you do FFA opening ceremonies? How should you have meetings? Should you let family members of students? You know, I had when I had meetings, um, a lot of times they were the fun meetings. I had a knock on my door and it was a cousin of a member who was in sixth grade and they had to watch that cousin. I said, well, come on in, enjoy the pizza. Just make sure you don't eat more than two slices. <laughs> um, I think the second thing you can do, and and for instance, let's take, you know, back up a little bit. I just said, don't do things that don't appeal. However, there are opportunities for you to use those are moments of growth. So for instance, take the FFA creed. I don't think it makes sense to have students recite the FFA creed in, let's say, an urban area or where there's not a strong tradition of agriculture. So don't have them recite it. Have them learn it and then have them adapt the creed to how it might mean in their life. Right. Teach them those 
cognitive and critical critical thinking skills. Now, if you have someone who wants to go do the FFA Creed as a contest, that's great. But just to have him recite it, I, you know, we could get we can get in a deep conversation about what the power of the word Creed means. And should you even be putting that onto people, making them say that this is a creed you should memorize? There's strong implications there. I'm not trying to get nefarious, right? But anyway, I, I think you could also adapt certain things to make more sense for the audience. And finally, last but not least, and this gets more to the heart of the theoretical stuff around whiteness, you could focus more on community-oriented events or chapter-oriented events and less on competitions. Now, take for instance, I'll give an example back in Urbana. In Urbana, we only grew because we established a record of success doing things like family nights, game nights, video game nights, right? Where we suddenly had 25, 30, 40, 50 people coming to these events. And then what we said was, Who's interested in doing the poultry contest or who's interested in doing a speaking contest? Then we started building that way. But the focus and, and a lot of the chapter was built on these kind of activities. And, and we put a heavy emphasis on things like national chapter award. So it's just knowing where to put your emphasis. Now, we could have an interesting conversation on there's certain boundaries of that. There's certain limitations. You know, are, do they, are they getting the most out of the FFA experience? That's a... That's a graduate level discussion that maybe shouldn't be had here. Uh, but those are some you know, quick things I could recommend doing. I don't know. It might be a conversation to have here when we think about who are we serving and who do we serve well. Like, Even if I think about the chapter that I taught in where our racial ethnic diversity was, was not high. But when somebody would ask, did I talk about the socioeconomic diversity or some of the the my sped students I, I probably didn't but but they were there and able to be involved because we were in our community or focused at our chapter where even some of the things when it comes to competition there's a lot that's associated with that in terms of being able to travel outside of school potentially outside of school hours and being able to afford meals while you're traveling if you're if you're gone over a lunch that you rely on at school um, and so I think it's it's not just an issue of of what's what's there and what have we upheld, but who are we really trying to serve when we talk about some of these efforts at being more inclusive and available for everybody? If we're talking about things like affiliate programs and SAE for all, who is all and can they be there? <laughs> well, and so speaking of SAE for all, you know, I hear rumors of, of even national trying to rethink things like proficiency awards to, to match SA for all. And I think that's smart, right? Because one of the things about SA for all is great is that you can now have groups of students taking part in SAEs and they officially count. I was so lucky in Illinois. I had an amazing FK advisor named Mindy Bunselmeyer, who's now their, you know, uh, state director. She, I, I told her, I was like, this is what I'm doing. And it's uh, community based. It's, you know, it's a, uh, in, in the program. And she said, just count it. It makes sense to me. Um, and so you are allowed now, if you're a, if you're a program that's in a more urban area, to have to have more options. But how do you then recognize that? I think you're right, Becky. Right? That like, if you it's one thing to be able to do it, but if you can't recognize a student at the same level, then it's still an uneven playing field, and you're sending signals about what's actually really valued, both to the the teachers 
and the members. And so you got to balance that out. And that's 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 not easy. There, I don't. I'm not presenting things. I'm I'm presenting quick fixes to sort of get programs jump started. It doesn't really address certain questions around, for instance, what is urban agriculture in the FFA setting? And I tell you what, the people that can develop that, shoot, I might give them money in my own pocket as a as a grant source, right? It's a it's a tough question. And I say, what is urban agriculture in the FFA setting? It's like what how can we find room for that to exist in a meaningful way? And so I, I and can I give you one more example? Um, we and my co-author team, who I've been lucky enough to work on some of these topics for a while, are the topic we have the most fun with is the FFA jacket. Now, can you get rid of the FFA jacket and still have an FFA? And the answer that we keep coming up with in our just thought exercises is no, right? That like you can't gut the FFA completely of all traditions because traditions are the core of the FFA. And so getting rid of the FFA jacket would only serve to, in my mind, probably um, hurt the organization in the long run. So there are there are boundaries to which you can do and what changes you can make. Um, and that's a much challenging conversation of how do we in the FFA and how do we in, in high school agriculture adapt to an ever urbanizing population? We're going to be coming up to these the edges of these conversations again and again and again and having to make harder and harder decisions. We can't run away from that. We have to be ready to to take on these conversations, but I don't think it's going to get easier as time goes on. Well, I think that's why I appreciate this discussion and and the work that you do, Mike, is that um, we all get in our own little worlds at times, put our blinders on and only think about maybe the communities or, or even sub-communities that we live and work in and don't necessarily think very deeply about this. And your work and these conversations really start to give it some thought and cause us to pause and, and really kind of think and reflect on what is really happening within the organization, within our communities, and and how do we um, build a, a, a broader, bigger community that we can um, engage in and, and make it uh, beneficial and helpful to a broader audience. Well, I think part of that too is going, how do we um, provide that? It's part of our implicit values that we put on certain FFA activities. I mean, you've mentioned several things that are part of the FFA program overall and, and saying, well, you just might not do certain parts of it. And unfortunately, um, Ag, ag teacher FFA advisors who have chosen to focus more on the community development side and things like I'm, I'm thinking some examples now. If you would ask a lot of the ag teachers and folks in ag ed in a state to list the top ag teachers, they're never going to list that person. But if you if you talk to the people in that community, man, they are yeah, they embedded. Think a rock star. In, yeah, they are. They are <laughs> embedded in that community and <laughs> what they're doing. And so, how do we help? Um, Luckily, those people have enough self-confidence to say, hey, I am doing a great job, even though that I may not be going across the FFA stage 18 times at state convention, but I'm making a real difference in the lives and I'm being part of that community. And where I am being, and they are being recognized in things like the national chapter program and those kind of activities 
but it's not winning the livestock judging contest or it's not winning the, the prepared public speaking contest, which is fine. I mean, how do we provide an opportunity to say that a, a, a chapter and an FFA advisor can be successful in a number of different ways as long as they are doing the things that connect with their local community and understanding that things that connect with my community will most likely be different than the things that connect with your community. Well, so this is where people do, do come in, right? Um, this is this is where people can be either inclusion or exclusionary. And so I recommend teachers of ag think about these things, right? And be ready to have um, an, an open mind about what a successful program is and be ready to really talk about those things, right? That the, I think the easy thing to do is to say, you know, this person has this many state winning contests every year or, you know, uh, teams and they have this many state degrees. I'm not saying forego that, but I'm saying like you, you talked about Dr. Myers is be ready to highlight other programs in which have a more complete view of what they do and hold them up as examples rather than to say, you know, I don't want to say exclude, right? But we can right. exclude by not mentioning, by not talking, right? right. That's how exclusion really happens. It's ex exclusion by omission. And we, we just can't do that. Um, there is a there is an element of statewide teacher culture at play. And I've seen now four different states, and I can tell you four different stories of how states will view a complete program or what they deem to be a complete program and then the ramifications of that for conversations like this. So that we do need to, as individual teachers and even teaching educators, be emphasizing the value of a complete program to help get this jump started. This is not going to be in some cases pretty, right? Like we are grinding through teachers and some of this, to, to some of this in some way is, is one of the reasons why, right? That like, you just can't be a good teacher. It feels like you got to be the rock star at everything you do. But what I'm arguing is just be a good teacher, community-centered, and you can be successful with um, diverse audiences. Well, this has been great, Mike. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. I think that's a, a great way to end it. Just be a great teacher in your community good doing the, doing those things. Be a good teacher in your community, uh, being that community focus. So uh, thank you so much for being with us here today on Owl Pellets. I hope everybody uh, checks out your work and interact with us on social media. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Owl Pellets. Check out our website for more information on this topic and to learn more about our guests. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay connected. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you'll never miss an episode. For Mike and Becky, this is Brian here by the Owl Pellets saying thank you. And we look forward to seeing you again on another episode of Owl Pellets Tips for Ag Teachers.